1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem Institute. Today, we'll be talking with Rabbi Baroness Julia Neuberger about her book, Anti Semitism What It Is, What It Isn't, Why It Matters. Julia Neuberger is senior rabbi at West London Synagogue and a crossbench member of the House of Lords. She chairs the Van Leer Jerusalem Institute and is a member of the board of the Van Leer Foundation, as well as a trustee of many other charities. She's also a trustee of Full Fact, an organization dedicated to getting proper information and fair evidence before the public. Julia Neuberger, welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be with you. It's a sad fact of life today that antisemitism is on the rise. In the 20th century, industrial-sized mass murder resulted from a combination of historical Christian contempt for Jews with the white, or so-called Aryan, supremacy Nazi ideology. What are the elements that comprise 21st century antisemitism?
0: Well, quite a lot, actually, of what caused 20th century antisemitism. It hasn't gone away. I think it's important to say that for most people, it was considered completely unacceptable to express their anti-Semitism in the immediate post-Holocaust period. You know, people had seen the, well, originally the newsreel in 1945, 1946, of the uh, opening, the liberation of the the concentration camps of Auschwitz, of Belsen, and so on. And so people were really, really shocked. And first of all, those who'd had some anti-Semitic ideas very often, I mean, after that, realised where it could lead, and and you know dropped them. But others kept their anti Semitic ideas, and they buried them. And I think one of the things we're seeing is the rebirth of something that never really went away. And I think it's quite important to say that. But the second thing is, you've still got the vestiges of Christian anti Semitism in a largely post Christian age in part of the world, but in a Deeply evangelized, uh, you know, country like the United States, we've got a you know high church attendance. Even if the churches themselves do not say this, there is a folk memory of people saying, "And the Jews killed Jesus." So that's still there, even if it's not taught in the way that it used to be taught. And the third thing, and it's really important, and people keep forgetting it, is that immediately after the war there was Stalin in russia and there was the doctors plot and the doctors plot was quite appalling <clears throat> where doctors who were mostly jewish were accused of being disloyal to the regime accused of being too rich too powerful etc and they were all dismissed from their jobs this was in the late 1940s immediately after stalin's death in 1953 this was completely this was exposed as total nonsense The Soviet regime reinstated some of those that were still alive, still there to be reinstated, and the whole thing was forgotten. But it had a deep influence on Stalinist ideology. And we have a significant Stalinist ideology on the hard left wing of the Labour Party in the UK. And I think you will find a hard Stalinist wing on the left in many countries actually around the world. And they still carry some of those ideas from the doctor's plot, even though that was in the late 1940s, and we're now talking 2019-2020. And it's particularly significant because presumably, I mean, this is more difficult to nail completely, but presumably some of those ideas in the doctor's plot actually have much earlier origins they have their origins in the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was hugely powerful in Nazi ideology. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, produced in the very early 19th century, demonstrated to be a forgery and complete rubbish in the London Times in 1921, but nevertheless continuing to be published. And the Protocols of the Elders of Zion alleged that the world Jewry, I wish world Jews could agree on anything, I mean, two Jews, three opinions isn't a joke, <laughs> and that world, Jew, you know, that, that, that somehow world Jewish leaders got together and plotted how to take over the world. That's what the Protocols of the Elders of Zion is about. And those ideas, this idea that there is a world Jewish conspiracy and they want to su- subject everybody else to either poverty or to being in their power or whatever, whatever, that if you like, fueled some of the Stalinist ideas and you still see some of that. Go and look on Twitter and you'll still see
1: that. Hmm. Well, you and I are speaking just days before the UK voter goes to the polls uh, when Britain's Labour Party, for whom racism is said to be a cardinal sin, is rife with anti-Semites and anti-Semitism of the most primitive sort. What impact do you think that is having on British politics?
0: Well, I think that a lot of people who might otherwise have voted Labour in the forthcoming election will not be voting Labour because of it. I think people are very shocked and they're very shocked for several different reasons. It's really quite interesting when you start disaggregating it. They're shocked because it's anti-Semitism anyway. But they're also shocked because Jeremy Corbyn, leader of the Labour Party, keeps coming out saying strongly, you know, I am a racist, I have opposed racism and anti-Semitism all my life. Well, actually, it's very difficult to find much that he's ever said about anti-Semitism. But they're also shocked that after all the evidence that the Labour Party has not dealt with the anti-Semites in its midst, the people who are members of the Labour Party and who are saying deeply anti-Semitic things, After all the evidence has been made completely public, and a lot of it was made public over this last weekend, the weekend immediately before the election, even then, it has taken Jeremy Corbyn really years to apologize for it. And he has finally apologized in the run-up to the election, but he didn't apologize when the Jewish community demonstrated to him now nearly two years ago how hurt they were by this phenomenon. Because this has only occurred in the Labour Party like this since Jeremy Corbyn became leader in 2015. This is new. So there is anti-Semitism. Of course there is anti-Semitism. There's plenty of anti-Semitism on the hard right, and we know about that. But we're not used to seeing this anti-Semitism on the left.
1: Okay, well, that's today's truth. And uh, let's go more deeply into the history, as you do in the book. Tell us about the early Christian proponents of contempt toward Jews and Judaism, including Saint Augustine. so there were a large number of uh, saints
0: and uh, well saints uh, there are a large number of what I would call church fathers, so the kind of the, the early church which had these scholars and writers and thinkers who wrote a whole variety of stuff and who were deeply influential. I think you know we have to recognize that Modern Christianity is still heavily influenced by them. And one by one, they said the most dreadful anti-Semitic things, including, as you rightly say, Augustine. And some of them said the sorts of things that are almost unbelievable, that, you know, it would be better that the Jews were dead, that the Jews were kind of infidels, the Jews, you know, didn't understand about God, and even the better ones of them. And I think that's one of the things that's so surprising. Even the ones who knew something about Judaism, who had some dialogue with some rabbis at the time, even they come out with the most horrific things and the most sort of Judaism denying things. Now, you have to get a picture in your head about how they saw Christianity, and they saw Christianity as the replacement of Judaism. They saw Christianity was uh, the, the the new covenant, the new truth, the new everything. And Judaism represented the old, the dead, the thing that had been superseded. And you can see that. You know, you can look at any number of medieval and Renaissance paintings in any gallery all around the world, and you will see the picture of some, you know, you might see a nativity scene, and you will see probably to the left and in an upper left-hand corner, you will see a sort of dying tree with its branches falling away, and that is symbolic of Judaism. That's Judaism dying, falling away with broken branches. And they just went for Jews and Judaism. Of course, what they were trying to do was to convert many of the Jews to Christianity. And what we forget, and I think Jews forget this a lot, is that by the end of the Roman period, the, uh, Rome had become a Christian uh, civilization. And Jews were being persecuted for proselytizing. Where did Christianity learn about proselytizing? Actually, from Judaism. But by the end of the sort of, you know, uh, fourth century into the fifth century, Jews were persecuted for proselytizing. And indeed, now Judaism has become largely an anti-proselytizing
1: religion. We do make converts, but we certainly don't go out and search for them. And how did those hateful ideas and attitudes evolve in the in the Middle Ages, you mentioned that briefly, and then beyond through Martin Luther. So this goes so from the church
0: fathers. So one of the things we have to realize is that the church fathers were very highly literate for their period, and that the kind of the leaders of the Christian church, the monks and so on, were highly literate at a time when most people were not. And they So the later monks studied these earlier church fathers, the church fathers became hugely significant, and everybody carried on reading this stuff and adding to it and adding to it. And by the time you get to the Middle Ages, you've got a much more popular uh, anti-Judaism that's really spreading across uh, Christian Europe. And you can see that because you get things like the Uh, the Fourth Lateran Council of 1215, which insists that Jews must wear a, a special hat and a badge. The yellow star, which the Nazis made the Jews wear, was nothing new. This had come in the 13th century, Jews wearing special hats, special badges, so you could identify them. And the reason you were supposed to be able to identify them was so that you would For instance, not borrow money from them. Many Jews were moneylenders because most other occupations were closed to them. You wouldn't borrow money from them. You certainly wouldn't have sexual relationships with them. You would keep clear of them. They were dangerous. They, even to some people, would symbolize the devil. And through the Middle Ages, through the European Middle Ages, you see Jewish communities being uh, expelled from one city-state after another. Uh, that, that was true, by the way, under Christian rule. It wasn't so true under Muslim rule in, in say, for instance, in, in Spain. But under Christian rule, Jews were were evicted from one place or another. Usually they were evicted from one and went into some other city-state. And things got more and more difficult, and Jews kept were kept more and more distinct. And they ended up in the ghetto. So the ghetto is probably invented originally in Venice, Um, and they were kept in a separate place and they were locked in at night so that they couldn't in some way infect and particularly, I think, have sexual relations with people who were Christian, good Christian folk. And that that gets worse and worse as the later Middle Ages. And then you come to the rise of the Protestant church and Protestantism and Luther, whose attitude to Jews is really unspeakable i'm mean, he uh, of 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 all of the uh, anti-semites that you read until you get to the uh, well until you get to the late 19th century um luther is he really really hates jews he really sees jews as dangerous uh appalling um infidels uh to be evicted, not to be allowed to live in their proper houses, supposed to be living in barns. He is completely vile about them. And that vitriol uh, affected a section of the Protestant church. And what's interesting about that is, whilst the anti-Semitism affected the Christian church, the Protestant church particularly, so deeply, this is also the beginning of the period where the Protestant church particularly the leaders and the, the learned people in the Protestant church were beginning to learn biblical Hebrew.
1: Yeah, that is interesting.
0: It is an irony. It really is an irony. Now, they were yeah. they were learning it and reading it for reasons nothing to do with Judaism. They wanted to read the text in the original language and understand it. But just as they were saying these terrible things about the Jews, they were reading he- reading and learning and studying Hebrew. And, you know, when you look at that, studying Hebrew went right through in Britain people continued to study Hebrew as a classical language along with Latin and Greek right into the beginning of the 20th century.
1: Well, it also shows that uh, education and scholarship is no protection against bigotry and hatred. I think we know that only too well. And some of the great
0: scholars, and you know, look at some of the Nazis who were the great biblical scholars and whatever, and yet they went along with all of it, knowing perfectly well that some of it couldn't possibly be true.
1: Right. Okay, so you've given us a background on Christian anti-Semitism, how deeply and historically rooted it is. Uh, let's look at the Islamic community. How did Muslim anti-Semitism develop? So Muslim anti-Semitism is really much later,
0: and I think it's really important to emphasize that. By the way, one of the things we didn't talk about in Christian anti-Semitism that probably is worth picking up, because it then gets picked up much later in Muslim anti-Semitism, is the blood libel. And the blood libel in the the Christian church was the accusation that Jews used the blood of a Christian child in the making of matzah for Passover, uh, unleavened bread, matzah for Passover. And this actually shamefully started in Britain, and it was repeated several times in Britain, in fact, until the expulsion of the Jews from Britain in 1290. And oddly enough, it reappears much, much later, at the end of the 19th century, it occasionally reappears in Muslim thought, but it's not, um, Muslims were not anti Semitic in, in anything like the same way. And I think that's really important to emphasize. So, modern Muslim anti Semitism is largely related to Israel Palestine, whereas modern Christian anti Semitism may look as if it's related to Israel Palestine, but has much older and really sinister roots. So, when we come to Islam, I think it's really very important to say that although Jews who lived in under Muslim rule had to pay a poll tax, jizya, sort of, so you had to pay a poll tax to the rulers, so did Christians. Any minority had to pay a, pay a poll tax. And you get very, very different views that, um, that you've got, for instance, Um, there were negative stereotypes of Jews. And Bernard Lewis, who's the great scholar, says this in in, in turns. There were negative stereotypes of Jews uh, throughout uh, Muslim history, Uh, but they weren't like the uh, Christian ones. Jews were not feared by Muslims. If anything, they became a sort of object of ridicule rather than fear. And I think it's really important like that. So, you, you find plenty of verses that are sympathetic to Jews in the Quran. Um, you know, and everybody knows that uh, Muhammad um, admired Jewish monotheism. Um, it's clear that Jewish practices modelled some sort of early Muslim behaviour, such as midday prayer, uh, prayers on Friday, Ramadan fasting, which is probably modelled after Yom Kippur, uh, and. We, we know that until 623 of the Common Era, Muslims prayed towards Jerusalem and not Mecca. So there was a lot of influence across from Judaism into Islam. And you don't get, you, you get quite a lot of peaceful coexistence. You get people talking now about the golden age of Spain, 400 years of Islamic rule in Spain where Jews flourished, and they certainly flourished. It's a golden age of Jewish of of Hebrew poetry, Jewish Hebrew poetry. It's a golden age of Jews as viziers to various rulers. But at the same time, it's clear that quite a lot of of views about the Jews in the Quran and elsewhere um, are less positive. And there's a a saying, which perhaps it's just worth me reading, which comes from a hadith that's a post-Quran, um, writing, probably quite a late one, um, and this is what it says, and it's a particularly um, common ama- to hear this amongst Sunni Muslims. The day of judgment will not come about until Muslims fight the Jews, when the Jew will hide behind stones and trees. The stones and trees will say, "Oh Muslims, oh Abdullah, there is a Jew behind me, come and kill him. Only the Garkad tree would not do that because it is one of the trees of the Jews. The Garkad tree is apparently the boxthorn tree. Now, there are lots of interpretations of all of that and whether it is literal or not. What is clear is that this is quite often uh, quoted and it is, in fact, part of the Charter of Hamas. So this is about the legitimacy, if you like, in a hadith uh, of killing the Jews. Mm
1: So Christian and Muslim Jew hatred have borrowed from one another over the century Indeed. And, have, and have developed uh, mutually reinforcing narratives. Ab- Tell us a little bit Ab- about that. Absolutely. Yes. They've reinforced each other. And then what you've got, you know, you get
0: modern Muslim antisemitism really starts in the 1950s and it gets, you get more of it later and you get on um, quite a lot of modern Islamic, mainly Islamic fundamentalist sites, you get the protocols of the Elders of Zion being reborn, and you keep on seeing it. It's really quite extraordinary uh, that you keep on seeing it, and it's it's related to the failure of Arab nationalism. Uh, it's Islamist, a lot of it. It comes from a lot of it comes from the Charter of Hamas, Hezbollah. Uh, so you get quite a lot of explicit anti-Semitism in modern. Middle Eastern political discourse. But what is so interesting is that so much of what is cited, so much of what you get on those sites is quoting what is actually much earlier Christian anti-Semitism. It's not, and although it it it, it claims to be about Israel and Palestine, and, and indeed I think for most Arabs it actually is, of course that's what it's about. But it uses imagery and it uses messages from an early period. So they feed each other. And similarly, in much modern Christian anti-Semitism, it parades itself as anti-Zionism, not anti-Semitism. Many Christians would be horrified to be told they were anti-Semites. But they then spend huge amounts of time within their churches, you know, um, campaigning against oh, the security wall in Israel, uh, campaigning for free Palestine, etc., etc., and can't see that, that they're borrowing from each other.
1: Mm-hmm. Some might say that Judeophobia is a uh, more precise term for the psychological phenomenon of Jew hatred. What, where did the term anti-Semitism come from? Oh, it's a, com- and- it's a completely what- ridiculous term. Um, It's what we all use
0: because it's kind of common speak and it would be quite weird to, if you like, change the terminology which has been in common parlance since the 1870s. But it is a nonsense. You know, if you have anti-Semitism, you must have something called Semitism. There is no such thing. Um, Semitic languages exist. Hebrew, Arabic, Akkadian, Aramaic, etc. Semitic languages exist, but Semitic peoples do not and so if you don't have Semitism and Semites, how can you have anti-Semitism? But although we all know that's right, and although Judeophobia and or Jew hatred, if you wanted to say something, you know, would be a much more accurate term. The truth of the matter is that anti-Semitism serves as a sort of shorthand, and so people tend to use it. And interestingly, increasingly it's anti-Semitism without a hyphen between anti and Semitism precisely on the basis that there's no such thing as Semitism.
1: Now, and, go on, sorry. sorry. Well, the term also sort of uh, cleans up, it sanitizes the idea, which is Jew hatred. I'm uh, and- not sure it does, because it has such association
0: with the Holocaust and the destruction of Jews. I'm not sure it sanitizes it, really. Um I find that, I I know people do say that. I'm not entirely sure, because I think people do have an association. When you talk about anti-Semitism, using that term, which is wholly inaccurate, but when you use that term, people associate that with the Holocaust. Whereas if you use Jew hatred, or or Judeophobia, they haven't a clue what you mean. And Jew hatred, they think, yeah, okay, so I hate a few Jews. So I think it's really important that, it, you know, a lot of this is about association, not about true meaning. And the term comes back to, it goes, really goes back to the 19th century. Um, so we, we know that the, the first actual known use dates back to 1880. And there was this Austrian Jewish scholar, Moritz Steinschneider, who attacked the French philosopher Ernest Renan, who had these ideas that Semitic races—you see what I mean about Semitism—Semitic races were inferior to Aryan races, and I think it's a really, really interesting thing because you—the idea of anti-Semitism really comes from a, a journalist called Wilhelm Marr, and he wrote a he wrote a pamphlet in 1879, which is about the I can do it in German, but I'm I'll uh, give you a translation: the victory of the Jewish spirit over the Germanic spirit, observed from a non-religious perspective, and he's the one who started using Semitismus, Semitism, interchangeably with Judentum, Judaism or Jewry. Mm-hmm. Uh, the term, So this is this is where the term comes from. Ma is a most extraordinary character. He was a journalist. He was obviously a really angry guy. And he, ha- he was married three times, and two of his wives were Jewish. And his third, uh, third wife was a, 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 the, the daughter of a mixed Jewish-Christian marriage. So he knew Jews, he lived amongst Jews, and he became the most virulent of anti-Semites. And he attacked Jews, he attacked a, a lawyer... Isaac Wolfson, who was the liberal speaker of the Hamburg Parliament. And he accused Jews of betraying the democratic movement, abusing their emancipation, because Jews, after all, had only recently acquired civil rights in most of Europe. And he just was vile. And of course, he kept on standing for political office. And because of his virulent anti-Semitism, he didn't get elected. But he was an appalling guy. and He ended up, founding the Anti-Semitic League, the Antisemiten Liga, uh, which was the first German organization that was committed to combating the threat to Germany, I should say the alleged threat to Germany and German culture posed by Jews and their influence. And he advocated the forced removal of Jews from Germany. And I think that's really important. So this is by the, you know, you're getting into the late 1870s, 1880s, 1890s. It's not that long before the rise of the Nazis in the 1920s who picked up on this idea of the forced removal of Jews from the country. This variant anti-Semitism became absolutely, uh, you know, it became a huge deal, mostly not amongst the kind of aristocracy, not amongst the elite, as people would now say. But nevertheless, it was uh, it was widespread, and they believed that Jews were essentially different in kind. They believed in race theory, which was becoming very popular in late ni- the late nineteenth century. They believed that Jews were a race, and that the Aryans were a different race and superior. They believed in the measuring of skulls to see, you know, people's superiority or inferiority, and the idea that there is only one race, and it's the human race, completely passed them by. And it was vicious. I think one of the things that's important is, shocked as I am, by reading uh, a lot of the works of the early Christian fathers, these church fathers who had a real go at Jews and Judaism, most of that, even, even Luther, who is vile, is not as as absolutely disgusting as some of this stuff, this Wilhelm Marr or Heinrich von Treitzker, uh, who was a Prussian nationalist, and
1: various others. It just got worse and worse and worse. And that hatred boiled over into the cataclysm of the Holocaust. Yet today, there's denial of that historical event. What, What can you tell us about Holocaust denial? Who does it serve? And how does it spread? Okay, so uh, it boiled over,
0: of course, into the Holocaust. It boiled over into this kind of extraordinary race theory that was uh, strongly held by a whole variety of people, including the very well-known Francis Galton, uh, including, as as I discovered when researching this book, including some Jewish anthropologists. They all bought into it, and then you get the cataclysm of the Holocaust. And you would think, therefore, that people would think differently. But no, they do think differently, some of them. They think differently by trying to deny the Holocaust. And some of them deny the Holocaust completely. It didn't happen. It isn't true. It isn't a historical event. And others deny the scale of it and try and minimize it and say, you know, where is the evidence of the gas atoms? Where is the evidence of all this? And of course, we've seen that with the famous um, uh, li- uh, libel trial. So, so Deborah Lipstadt versus David Irving. And David Irving having a real go at Deborah Lipstadt and saying it's not true, and Deborah Lipstadt winning, and David Irving no longer being described as a historian, but as a historical writer and very much in in, in complete disgrace. But he may be in disgrace, but Holocaust denial is all over social media. Where does it get them? Well, this exactly is, that, this <laughs> is where I think it gets them. If you can either minimize the scale of the Holocaust or you can deny that it ever happened at all, you can turn on the Jews and you can say. Those Jews are always moaning and always complaining and always saying they're being picked on. But it's not true. So why should you have any sympathy with them? And you can go even better if you want to, because you can look at the rise of Holocaust museums and Holocaust memorials around the world. And you can say, these Jews, they're putting up all these memorials to these people who died, but they didn't die. You're being conned, oh great public. This is absolute rubbish and you should turn on the people who are conning you because actually they want you to feel sorry for them. They want you to feel that they've been victimized. But look at them. They own the media. They own big business. They're immensely powerful. And you go back to some of the stuff that's in the protocols of the elders of Zion. So the more you can say that this isn't true or it isn't on the scale that we know that it was, the more you can say They don't deserve sympathy. They don't deserve understanding. We do not need to commemorate the Holocaust. It wasn't the greatest genocide known to humanity. And actually, these Jews are putting one over on you. And actually, you should hate them
1: for it rather than sympathize. One frequently hears the defensive line, I'm not anti-Semitic. I'm just anti-Zionist. And Natan Sharansky, who I'll remind our listeners, spent many years in Soviet prisons as a prisoner of conscience. And once he was released, he went on to have a political career in Israel. Sharansky proposed the 3D method of differentiating between legitimate criticism of Israel, as one can criticize any country's policies, and anti Semitism. His 3Ds were. Demonization, delegitimation, and double standard. Can you tell us what he meant by that? Absolutely. So the first thing that he would say is that if you uh,
0: if you delegitimize a country, if you delegitimize a country, if you say it doesn't have a right to exist, that is the easiest way of dealing with it. Because if you say it doesn't have a right to exist, and you can say somehow you can give completely fake historical uh data so suggest it doesn't you know it doesn't have a right to uh, exist um then you can get to the situation of saying I can say what I like about it because it shouldn't exist at all this of course is complete nonsense seems to me that Sharansky takes the demonization and delegitimization um, view rightly but can I just try and can I just try and alter that a bit because this is what I think we need to say I think, I think we need to say it is legitimate to criticize any country in the world uh, for its policies. But it is not legitimate to say that a country that has been, if you like, established um, part of the United Nations or whatever, doesn't have a right to exist. And indeed, you know, we have an issue at the moment um, with Scottish, uh, Scottish nationalism. If Scotland does go independent, are we going to say it doesn't have a right to exist? I mean, that's completely ridiculous. You cannot do that. So I think it's important to say that this idea that a country doesn't have a right to exist is nonsense. What you can say, I may or may not agree with it, but you can say is if you track back historically You might have been in a group of people, Jews and non-Jews alike, who didn't want there to be a state of Israel. And there were Jews in Britain who were opposed to the Balfour Declaration. We do know that. You can say that it shouldn't have been founded in the first place. But once it's there and has existed for over 70 years, it's a nonsense to say it shouldn't exist. So you can't delegitimize it. I think that's really important. You can criticize as much as you like, but you can't actually say it shouldn't exist. What about the other two D's? I'm coming on to that. (laughs) The the demonization. So it is how you talk about it. So we all agree, I think, or at least most people agree, uh, that you can criticize Israel as much as you like. But you can't criticize Israel alone amongst all other countries. You have to be able to criticize other countries. So, for instance, I would cite at the moment... If you are prepared to criticise the the government of Israel for its attitude, say, to uh, asylum seekers and refugees, and there are plenty of people who do criticise the government over its attitude to asylum seekers and migrant workers, why are you not criticising China for its treatment of a million Uyghurs in concentration camps, re-education camps? And if you only criticise Israel, but you don't criticise China, you need to be asking yourself some quite hard questions. And if you can't uh, criticize what's going on in Burma or persecution of Christians in Pakistan or any of the multiple human rights abuses that exist all around the world, if you never criticize any of them and you only criticize Israel, that is demonization. But it's not only, that's where I want to differentiate myself from Sharansky because it's not only demonizing Israel alone of other countries. There's something else that goes on, which I think is about tone of voice. And that's a much more difficult thing to get into. But if you listen to broadcasts and podcasts, and you hear the tone of voice in which some of these critics of Israel, these so-called anti-Zionists, who I would allege, many uh, many of whom are actually anti-Semites as well, the tone in which they speak of Israel and they never speak of any other country in the same tone. The shrillness, the, the 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 harshness. And they don't say that about China. They don't say that about Burma. That's the other part of it. And demonization doesn't quite cover that. There is something about tone that is really, really important. And the, And the double standards is this thing of, you know, you say this about Israel, you criticize Israel for this, but you don't criticize, say, your own country. And the example, I took the example of asylum seekers and migrant workers because equally you could criticise France you could criticise you could criticise my own country the united kingdom you can criticise many countries over their treatment of asylum seekers and migrant workers and indeed much of the western world is to be criticised over its treatment of asylum seekers and leading so many of them to rot in countries that are really too poor to
1: cope and yet while I think there would be widespread agreement about the uh, ubiquity of human rights abuses and less than ideal policies in most countries around the world, never do you hear a denial of that that country's legitimacy. Exactly, no other country is said it doesn't. Nobody says this country
0: doesn't have a right to exist, and that's why I use the example of Scotland. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know when when or indeed whether the Scottish Nationalist Party will eventually prevail and Scotland will go independent of the rest of the United Kingdom. I suspect it will happen, but I don't know. But I do know that if it happens, although lots of people will be very angry and many of people will have said beforehand that it shouldn't happen, people won't say it's not legitimate. I think it's really important to say you know, once a country exists and it's been agreed it exists and it's been agreed democratically. You can't
1: delegitimize it. It's just a nonsense. Uh, Besides the fact that it exists, talk a little bit about Jewish attachment to Israel, which long preceded the Holocaust, and 19th century ideas about nationalism. It's much, much earlier. And when I was talking earlier about the golden
0: age of Spain, of course, the really significant attachment through the poetry of some of those poets, Judah Halevi, My Heart is in the East, all of that poetry, the longing, the traveling. I mean, if you can think of these appalling journeys that people made from Europe, to Israel, to Jerusalem in the medieval period. It would take them years. It was incredibly dangerous. And sometimes, of course, by accident, they ran across a, you know, a crusading uh, horde as well. So it was definitely very unsafe. And yet my heart is in the east. And you can track this through I and mean, you can track it through, if you like, as soon as you get into the sort of Fifth, sixth, seventh centuries, but much later in the medieval period, you can see it everywhere. And Jews have longed for a return to Zion. And that return to Zion, by the way, I think it is important to say it's a mixture of the physical and actually a sort of almost a celestial Jerusalem. Um, you know, next year in Jerusalem. And that meant sometimes it meant literally, but it sometimes meant in a kind of state that is nearer perfection than the pretty awful life we're living right now. So it goes right through Jewish history, and one cannot deny it. And then since the existence of the State of Israel, and indeed before, but particularly since the existence of the State of Israel, the Jewish community has been pretty attached to it. And the Jewish community has been so attached to it at various points that it hasn't wanted to criticize it, even when Israeli policies have been very criticizable by some people. And it has continued to support, and that's particularly true in America uh, and in Latin America and and, and much of Europe. And Israel gets a lot of support, a lot of moral support from its diaspora. It also gets, of course, huge support from evangelical Jews, particularly in the United States. So there is huge support you out mean there. Evangelical Christians, sorry. Sorry, right? evangelical Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Of course I meant evangelical Christians. Thank you very much. Yeah. It gets huge support from evangelical Christians in the United States and to some extent in other parts of the world. But the attachment of the Jewish community to Israel and the still strong sense that, you know, that the state of Israel, if you like, exists. Uh, as a result of international agreement, out of horror at what happened during the Holocaust, and they're not directly related, but they're indirectly related, and it somehow
1: Israel is a symbol of hope for the Jewish people. That is still incredibly strong. Some people have suggested that anti-Semitism is a disease. It's a cognitive and a social pathology. I, I, would you be good enough to read from your book? I hope you have your book I have my book you. right here. Okay, uh, page 154 and the first few lines of 155, the quote from Kingsley Amos and Christopher oh, Hitchens. Oh, that is the most extraordinary, extraordinary passage. And I, mean, I think
0: it is worth saying to your listeners that Christopher Hitchens, you know, called Christopher, had no idea he was Jewish till relatively late in life. Uh, he had this conversation, I think in 2007, with, uh, with, Mar- uh, with Martin Amos. Oh, I thought it was King's I think Sorry. it's Martin. I think. I, think okay. it's, I think it's Martin. Yes, it's Martin Amos. It's Martin Amos and Christopher Hitchens, uh, and it was at Jewish Book Week in London in 2007. Um, and I think it's extraordinary. I don't wholly agree with them, by the way, but uh, I think it's extraordinary. Anti-Semitism is a very, very serious cultural danger. And it's only a fool who thinks that it is a threat only to Jews. Anti-Semitism is a very, very toxic threat to everything we can decently call civilization. If someone says they don't like West Indians because of their, I don't know what it might be, their music, or they don't like Indians because of the smell of their cooking, or they don't like Koreans for their kimchi, whatever it might be, every minority and majority in the world has a version of this kind of prejudice. But, as Freud pointed out, they'll all sink their differences when it comes to the Jews. And with the Jews, it's not their cooking, or their sex lives, or any of this. And it's not just vulgar prejudice about skin colour or smell. It's a theory. It's a paranoid theory that tries to explain quite a lot. It's fascinated with gold, with secret documents, with missing codices in ancient treaties, with the idea of an invisible and secret government. And it affects both left and right. It is becoming normal. And it sits in a world of fake news and social media, where if you repeat something often enough, people begin to believe it.
1: Well, thank you. That, that says it all and very succinctly. Absolutely, it does. It absolutely does. And, and
0: they're right that it's on the left and on the right. I think what is Interesting to say for your listeners. So, we've had a a lot of real rows about anti Semitism in Britain, particularly in the run up to this general election. And the chief rabbi, very unusually, came out, the chief rabbi of the United Kingdom, who actually only is chief rabbi of the Orthodox, but nevertheless is acknowledged as leader across the piece. And the chief rabbi came out saying that he thought that Jeremy Corbyn, leader of the Labour Party, wasn't fit to be leader or prime minister. And what was really interesting about that was how other minority faiths and groups came in in support, not because they'd been attacked, but because they saw, and that's a little bit about what Amos and Hitchens are saying, that this is something of a test of civilization. This is something about the moral heart of the nation. And they say, well, if the Jews are being attacked like this now, it could be us next. And so we had, as a community, huge support from Muslims, Sikhs, Hindus, Christians. It was astonishing. And I think it is worth saying it, that when Amos and Hitchens say it's a very toxic threat to everything we can decently call civilization,
1: it's not only Jews who think that. That is very important. Well, Julia, we've taken up a lot of your time, and I appreciate your sharing your insights and your ideas with us. Before I let you go, tell us what impact you hope your book will have. So what I
0: hope is that people will read it, and particularly people who aren't Jewish, uh, who, if you like, are not directly affected by this, because I do think there's an indirect effect on all of us. I hope that people will read it and understand it and will actually say, we are not going to put up with this. It's not only that we love Jews. I mean, I think many of them don't particularly love Jews, and why necessarily should they? But we do not want this kind of hatred, Jew hatred, as we talked about earlier, in our society. We don't want it for its own sake, and we don't want it because what it does to the fabric of our society, and we're going to throw it
1: out. Well, that sounds... Wonderful. And I hope your book does indeed have that impact. Julia, I want to thank you for being on the show today. And thanks to Bela Pasikov, our researcher. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.